Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 23 and 20. I'm sorry. We're going to be in verses 12 uh, through 22 this morning. 12 through 22 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 12 through 22. As you're opening up there, I want to say how grateful I am to be here among the Lord's people here on this holiday weekend. I'm so grateful uh, for the opportunities that we've got members and folks all over the place, I'm sure, enjoying football and the beach and the lake and all kinds of good things. I rejoice in that. And uh, we look forward to uh, having everybody everybody back next week. But we rejoice in where everyone's able to be this weekend. And for those of you who are here on a holiday weekend, praise the Lord for that. And uh, it means so much uh, that we get the opportunity to worship every Sunday, every Lord's Day. The Lord's people come together and they worship. Well, if you have your Bibles open there, won't you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning of verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity, a godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. So that you might have a, a second experience of grace or a double blessing. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts. As a guarantee. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God. We pray even now that you would open our hearts and minds. To receive your word. And Father we pray we would be changed by it. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The chef really. Really. Really needed. A job. And this well known upscale steakhouse in New York City seemed like the perfect fit for him at the time. It would be a steady paycheck and he knew he could do the work. And so, as he sat down for the interview, he, he was ready. He knew exactly how he would answer. He knew exactly what he would say. He, he understood the sort of person he was interviewing with. And so, as he sat down and performed the interview, he knew he would do great. And in fact, he did do great. In the memoir I read of the chef, he said that he could tell he had the job in his 
hands. He, he was on fire. Have any of y'all ever felt like that when you're just answering every question perfectly? He said he was really jiving. He had a really good relationship developing with the owner and the manager that he was interviewing with. And then they asked a question he did not expect. The owner looked at him and said really simply to him, What do you know about me? What do you know about me? It was the one question he didn't know. And so as he sat there perplexed, he said, I don't know really anything about this guy. And so he, he started thinking, what does he want me to do? Does he want me to kind of uh, 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 to suck up to him? Does he want me to try to make him seem, seem greater than he is? Or, or does he want me to kind of lie? Did, what does he want? What is it he's asking for? Should I just dodge the question? He knew nothing about this man. And so he decided that honesty was the best solution. And he looked at him and said simply, next to nothing. Well, if you've ever been in an interview that was going well, perhaps you've also been in an interview that wasn't going well, and you know what happens. They both smiled kind of awkwardly, started shuffling papers, shuffling the stack of resumes, thanked him for his time, and he left. It, it went downhill fast. They, they, they kind of laughed at him, in fact, and thanked him for his time. And so as he's walking back down the street, he said, what was I supposed to know about this guy? What is it that was so important? What was it I was supposed to know that would have made this interview go so well? And then suddenly, he wanted to cry. It dawned on him. What do you know about meat? What do you know about meat? And at that point, it was too late to go back and tell. Of course, if you're the owner of a steakhouse and your chef knows next to nothing about meat, he's probably not the chef to hire. Misunderstanding can be difficult. Being misunderstood can be even harder. What we all recognize there will be misunderstandings in life. We, we all recognize these happen. In fact, as I talk about misunderstandings, some of you even now are probably going back to moments where you realize you had a misunderstanding with someone. Some of you may even be right now in the midst with friends, families, co-workers, who knows who. You may be in the midst of a misunderstanding. Here we see the Apostle Paul and, and the Corinthian church in the middle of a, a really a complicated and, and seemingly very hurtful and certainly very serious misunderstanding. In fact, the book, the provenance, so to speak, the, the origin of the book of 2 Corinthians seems to be rooted in a misunderstanding between Paul and the Corinthian church. We know Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them we have. I, I think we have the first and the last of Paul's letters to the Corinthians that we know of. He may have written them after 2 Corinthians, but that we know of, that we have the provenance of, we, we, we recognize that there were two lost letters to the Corinthians, so it seems. And yet this letter seems to be rooted in this sort of brewing misunderstanding between Paul and the Corinthian church. And, and as we move through this book of the Bible together, this misunderstanding is going to play in the background, and we'll, we'll see the way that the devil can use a misunderstanding, simple things to help cause division in the Lord's church, division in our very lives. So I think that what we'll be able to see here in this passage as we move forward, I think this will be a good groundwork for us to think through. I think we can glean some 
biblical insight into how to handle uh, misunderstanding in our own life. And, and Lord forbid, in, in our own church perhaps. I, I'm sure the day will come again when we have some sort of a misunderstanding between a staff member in the church, between the pastor in the church, between a pastor and a staff member. Sometimes we misunderstand one another. How do we handle it biblically? I want to show you and demonstrate to you three points that are going to help you navigate the waters of a misunderstanding. I, I want to show you and demonstrate to you three points that are going to help you navigate the waters of a misunderstanding. First of all, let your relationship, that's our first point this morning, let your relationship frame a misunderstanding. You ever find yourself in some sort of a misunderstanding with someone? Let your relationship frame misunderstanding. I, I love the way Paul opens up this section of Scripture. Paul's a, a fun writer, but we see in verses 12 through 14, he says what? In verse 12, for our boast is this. Paul talks about boasting a lot. It's not a worldly boasting, but a, but a, a sense of pride about what God has done. A, a, a sense of boast in what God has done. So not bragging and, and not self-importance, but boasting in what God has done. So he says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and what? Supremely so toward you. And then I want to focus here for a moment on verse 13. We'll come back to 12. But I really want to look at 13 first. What, what does he say? For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. And then into 14, just as you did partially understand us. Paul's getting it out here, first of all. He's starting to use this word understand, and he's talking about how they partially understood them. He's framing what he's about to say in terms of what they understand. And what is Paul saying? You, you may not have fully understood us, but what I'm writing to you is, is really a, an extension of what I've already written to you. This isn't a backtrack. I'm just helping you understand more fully. And, and what does he root that understanding in? He roots it in their relationship. Here, here, here's what seems to be at play in Corinth. You, you have all the issues and the apparent factions that were present in 1 Corinthians with what seems to be a different feature. Something's developed in Corinth since 1 Corinthians. It seems like there's a new group of false teachers who have come to town and Paul calls them super apostles. It's kind of a sarcastic term, I think. Super apostles. And then this group is fueling the already extant fire of division at Corinth. There are kind of factions at Corinth. Paul addresses that early on in 1 Corinthians. And so Paul says and recognizes we move through this letter that there are these new apostles who are coming in and exploiting these divisions. A huge part of the trouble they're making, I think, is to cast doubt on the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. In particular, they're trying to say Paul's not a real apostle. That we're real apostles. And so Paul says they have this fresh category of apostleship. And so Paul calls it their super apostles. These false apostles. And so basically what I would argue is you've got the cast of characters in 2 Corinthians, which is Paul and his cohort, so to speak. Those who share with him in his apostolic ministry. And then at Corinth, you have Paul's detractors who seem to overlap with problematic Corinthian church leaders. There are groups at Corinth who are sort of opposed 
to Paul and what Paul's trying to make happen at Corinth, which is biblical gospel faithfulness. And then you've got faithful and godly Corinthian believers who seem to support Paul and, and love Paul in his ministry and care about Paul. And, and then I think you've got what almost every church typically have when a conflict or whatever else happens. You have a lot of folks who rightfully so are struggling through what's best and who's right. You've got a big group in the middle, I think, who are struggling through how to handle this. And then you've got these false teachers, the super apostles there in Corinth. Just reading back from Paul's letter here, it seems like this is kind of the group that you have developing. And so what Paul is writing to all of them, and obviously, you know, you've got some folks that are opposed to Paul, and then you've got some folks that are going to support Paul because they know Paul, know Paul's heart. And so Paul's writing this letter to the church at Corinth to try to help them get unity in the gospel. And as he does that, he is sharing with them about their relationship. In other words, why are you listening to these people who don't know me when you know me? You know me. What does he say? Our boast is this. It's the testimony of our conscience. What? That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And what? And supremely so toward you. In other words, you know what our ministry looks like. We don't ride into town demanding things of you. In fact, Paul says in his letters that he doesn't expect them to give money to them at all. He supports his own ministry financially. And so any money that Paul would be raising in Corinth is to go toward this, this offering that is going to the saints in Jerusalem that we'll learn about later. And, and so Paul's saying, I, believe, I behave with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And he says, supremely so toward you. In other words, you ought to know this better than anybody. I think, from the best I can tell, now, listen, y'all know I abominate this all the time, so I guess maybe when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, but I think the super apostles must have been some sort of health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. Because one of the things that Paul's going to have to defend is the fact he suffered as an apostle. You know, in other words, if he's such a great apostle, why is he suffering? That's kind of health, wealth, and prosperity type stuff. And, and, and it seems like these guys are mad because Paul's raising money for other people and they're, he's probably cutting in on their fundraising at Corinth. So they seem to be some sort of health, wealth, and prosperity group. But what does Paul say? He says their lives by God, God's grace, his and his cohorts' lives by God's grace were supremely manifested toward them. In other words, it was clear to them how they acted. You know us and you know how... We act. But what does Paul go on to say in verse 14? What does he say? For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand this, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That is, what Paul is saying is, if this misunderstanding is true, if we have an issue between us, and it seems that we do, then what we are trying to figure out it's how we can have the kind of relationship where we boast in one another when we inevitably stand before Christ together. One of the most famous American theologians and pastors ever was the 18th century uh, pastor and theologian named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. And uh, Edwards is well known for all kinds of things. You, you probably all know him only for one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And, uh, you know, that, that, that'd be like me preaching on hell one Sunday and everybody kind of remembering my whole ministry by one sermon. But it's a, it's a famous sermon. You've probably heard of him. But you may not know this, but Edwards was actually dismissed from the church he pastored for 23 years in Northampton. His grandfather had been the pastor there, and he, he made a theological change, and I think he was right, and they were wrong, but they didn't like it. And uh, now, in the church's defense, Edwards was um, not what one would call a warm pastor. Um, but still, it, it was a misunderstanding. And Edwards, in his, uh, the Sunday after he got voted out, he preached from this text in 2 Corinthians. And he preached on the fact that one day they would all stand before the judgment seat of God together. And, and listen to what, I, I want you to just hear some of what Edward said in that sermon. Okay, listen. listen. And I'm going to, listen, if y'all ever decide to fire me, you know what I'm going to preach on, don't you? Just want to go ahead and let you know. <laughs> if y'all fire me, you better not give me one last Sunday in this pulpit, I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> then every step of the conduct when we're before Christ's judgment seat every step of the conduct of each of us in this affair from first to last in the spirit we have exercised in all shall be examined manifested and our own consciences shall speak plain and loud and each of us shall be convinced and the world shall know and never shall there be any more mistake misrepresentation or misapprehension of the affair to eternity this this affair of when he got fired over this theological disagreement. This controversy, he goes on to say, is now probably brought to an issue between you and me as to this world. It has issued in the event of the week before last, but it must have another decision at that great day, which certainly will come, when you and I shall meet together before the great judgment seat. Therefore, I leave it to that time and shall say no more about it at present. But I would now proceed to address myself particularly to several sorts of persons. And he begins to pour out his heart pastorally to different groups in the church. Do you hear Edward's heart here? Do you hear what he's recognizing? It? And this is not just about pastor and church, but in any sort of disagreement we're with, we're in with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, this is something we recognize will one day be sorted out by God. And we must allow the relationship we have with one another, and then furthermore, our standing before God, the relationship we have with God, we must allow it to inform our understanding of our actions toward one another. It's important to remember that our relationships with one another are ultimately arbitrated by God. That's the reason I don't like to burn bridges. I, I don't ever want to get to heaven. And maybe I have. I, I, it's never intentional if I have, but I, I don't like to burn bridges. But I don't want to get to heaven and the Lord, there's always a chance, a likelihood in fact. I'm going to get to heaven the Lord's going to tell me I was wrong. And I guarantee in every misunderstanding I've ever had with anybody ever, I've been wrong about something. That's for sure. And so I, you, know, I don't want to go, you don't want to go scorched earth when God is the ultimate arbitrator. How will we act knowing that God will judge us? It, it must give us a level of humility to recognize and to imagine even now as we're in some sort of a disagreement with someone, we must imagine what it would be like if we were pleading our case before the God of the universe, a holy God who knows all and sees all. Wouldn't it change the way we handle a misunderstanding? And yet God is there. And you will stand before God one day. We must let our relationship frame 
any misunderstanding we ever have. But furthermore, our second point is this. We need to let the truth inform misunderstanding. Isn't that a novel concept? Let's let the truth inform misunderstanding. We, we, we cannot handle a misunderstanding without the truth being involved. This is a, a simple yet so often ignored point. And I see it in life. I see it on the news. I see it in politics. I see it in counseling situations. I, I see it in my own heart and life sometimes. Among friends, I see it all the time. That once we make up our mind, we don't care what the truth actually is. So, so often, once we've made our mind up, we don't care what the truth actually is. In fact, anything we might hear that sort of opposes the narrative we've construed in our mind, we oftentimes want to ignore or write off. And there, there are whole entire industries built around doing this. Apparently, Paul was accused of being fickle and double-minded by his opponents because he had changed his plans. Obviously, originally... We think Paul wrote this letter from Macedonia. And so the original plan was on his way to Macedonia to come by Corinth. And so apparently the Corinthians had sent Paul a letter saying, you said you were going to come. And listen, there's all these guys here telling us all this stuff. And, and they're saying you're fickle, that you're double-minded. You're not really an apostle. Paul's desire, he says here plainly, was to come to Corinth on his way to and on his way from Macedonia. He, he chose not to go on his way to Macedonia. And later in this letter, we'll learn why. In fact, we'll talk some about it next week. It was to spare his congregation from a, to spare the Corinthians from a harsh visit. It was mercy that kept Paul from going. But what Paul is doing here is he's demonstrating the truth about his motivation. He's talking about how he makes decisions. He's demonstrating here that he would never, he would never make plans according to the flesh, but he's making plans according to the Spirit. He wouldn't make plans according to the flesh, saying yes and no at the same time, vacillating. Instead, he's, he sincerely planned to come on the way to Macedonia, and his plans simply changed. N notice how he phrases it in verses 15, 16, 17, 18. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a, a, a double benefit, a second experience of grace. In other words, that they might benefit on both of his visits. He, he wanted them to have that. He said, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Do you see the love that Paul seems to have for the Corinthians? I wanted you to send me on my way. I boast of you, he says, before the Lord. Was I vacillating, verse 17, when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. I, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I have a vivid imagination. And so anytime somebody wants to meet with me, I start to panic. Anybody like that? If your boss says, hey, can we meet later? You start to think, oh my goodness, what have I done? You know, what is it I've done? Is anybody else like that? Anybody else have that experience? I'm like that. I'm always afraid something's wrong. And uh, so I try to do that when I ask somebody to meet. I try to tell them what it's about just because I assume they've got neuroses like I have and, and panic in these kinds of situations. But I, I like to do that. I, I, I like to do that. But we all have a tendency, I think, to assume motive. 
not just in benign situations like that, but all the time we hear somebody say something and we assume their motives. And, and we tend to want to assume malice. We tend to want to make a mountain of a molehill before we even know the truth. But instead, we must seek to learn and to know the truth. You see, there's, there's a lesson here from Paul. As he begins to share his motive in his heart, he, there's a lesson here that drama, to borrow a modern phrase, drama, disagreement, fighting, and just general misunderstandings could be transformed, I believe, by a passion for actually knowing and believing the truth. The truth matters. Think about how our society would be transformed if we were just passionate about the truth, just knowing the truth. You see, giving the benefit of the doubt, refusing to assume the worst possible motives about folks, and seeking to know the truth would go a long way in helping us, helping us navigate difficult relational waters. The truth must inform our disagreement. And how many times have you heard somebody say something and you've been hot about it until you find out the truth and you think, well, I, I overreacted. And, and some of us have overreacted in the moment and said things we shouldn't have said and things compound. And then, then you can't go back from there because then the people might think you're weak. No, what if we just were passionate about the truth? What if we did this? Now, I'm not much into this. What if we paused for a moment? Right? You hear something and you pause for a moment. Isn't that a good spiritual tool? Pause for a moment. Everybody that knows all oh, our staff and my wife and everybody else is like, Amen, brother, you need to pause for a moment. Think sometimes. No, I mean, I've, it's a lesson I've learned in my life. You don't have to react to everything immediately. All right, there's lots more to be said there, but let's move on. Here's our final point. And, and I think this is the most important one. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. We must let the gospel transform our misunderstandings. Let the gospel transform misunderstandings. Verses 19 through 22. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. I think what Paul is doing is taking a quote from the Corinthian letter that he's vacillating, that he's not letting his yes be his yes and his no be his no. It's a very similar formulation of the one our Lord used. And so I think they're saying he's disobeying Christ by, by, by improperly promising to come. I think Paul's taking a phrase they use, and I think he's defending himself, saying, no, that, that wasn't it. it. It's a simple misunderstanding. I, I, I did not come, and I'm going to tell you why, but, but why are you assuming the worst about me? You know me. I, I behaved before you with simplicity, with godly sincerity, supremely so toward you. The, the Corinthians were special to Paul. He loved them. And so he's taking this phrase, and now what is he doing? He's taking this phrase they used, he's defending himself and saying, I did not... Say yes, yes, and no, no, according to the flesh. And then what he's doing is he's making a theological application. He's showing the way that this simple misunderstanding and a bald-faced accusation of vacillation and disobeying the Lord is actually more than just a simple misunderstanding, but it is immensely theological. You see, this is what I love about Paul. I, I, I love this about Paul. He, he's about to take this seemingly mundane misunderstanding through the theological stratosphere. I, I mean, Paul says, you think 
you know what you're talking about. And you think that these super apostles know what they're talking about. But let me show you the way that the gospel transforms our misunderstanding. The way the gospel is supreme over all things. And so what does Paul do? He reminds them that every moment is holy. And that every action matters before God. And that every aspect of our lives, especially for Christians, is deeply and profoundly theological. Everything we do is in relationship to God. All the promises of God, he says, find their yes in Him. And that is why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. Because all the promises of God or yes. Paul is showing that in Christ, it is always yes. That he's not vacillating. He's simply doing what Jesus tells him to do. And he's going to demonstrate the way that the gospel and that his theology motivated him not to go to Corinth the second time. And he's going to show them why the gospel is motivating and mandating him to come to Corinth on the return trip. He's showing them that his life is animated by the gospel. And he's showing the way that the Corinthians share in and support his ministry because they've benefited from his ministry. And so what Paul says that is that he lives out the gospel and he shares the gospel with simplicity and godly sincerity and that he is not vacillating by saying yes and no but instead that he is living a life that produces a resounding yes and amen to God because in Christ it is always yes. Paul is not going to leave this on the shallow, narrow plane of he said, she said. He, he's not going to leave this in the dusty, low-down dirt of whose feelings are hurt and who's upset and who thinks this and who thinks that. No, no, no. He's saying this is our relationship. This is the truth. And this is the God whom we serve. Now we can have a misunderstanding. Now we can deal with this because the gospel is at work in our hearts and lives. It's God who is at work. It's God who says yes and sent Paul on to Macedonia. It's God who says amen, yes and amen, to his promises through Christ. It's God who established Paul in the church. It's God who has sealed us, Paul says, for that great day. It is God who has given us the Spirit as a reminder and guarantee of the gospel, as we see in verse 22. All that we do, all that we are, everything about us and everything about our lives is informed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must let the gospel transform our misunderstanding. We must have gospel grace, give gospel grace, and re receive gospel grace. We must let our theology, what we say we believe, we must let it shape even our challenges and misunderstandings. We cannot simply behave like the world behaves. We must behave like Christ has called us to behave. And we must recognize that we all have the same promised hope. And that we all share in the same Holy Spirit. And that we are all established as one in Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, God and God alone. And who God is. And what God has done. And how God has behaved toward us. And how for most of this in this room, it is God who knit our relationship together in the first place. 
And, and, and that's quite so literally in the church, but also just in His providence. Anyone you know, you know because God wanted you to know them. And so we must let the gospel transform the way we behave together. Who God is, what God has done, must define our disagreements. Brothers and sisters, disagreements will happen. We live in a fallen world. We can't always see things perfectly. So, so sometimes we misunderstand one another. Sometimes we speak poorly. Sometimes we're going to have challenges. But here's the reality. We must let our relationship, we must let our relationship frame our disagreements. The relationship you have with whoever it is you disagree with must frame your disagreements. You must be passionate about the truth. God is truth and Christians should care about the truth. And so we have to let truth inform our disagreements. And brothers and sisters, we have to, as with the rest of our lives, let the gospel transform our disagreements. You know, maybe perhaps in all the disagreements and misunderstandings we may have, maybe there's a question that we need to answer. Perhaps the right question is, and the, and the question from the Lord is, and it, perhaps it is the right way to ask it, what do you know about me. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and your faith in Jesus for the first time, I, I want to open this invitation to you. I believe Christ will save you if you'll turn from your sins in repentance and turn to Him in faith through the blood of Jesus. I believe you will be saved. And furthermore, you may be a Christian and say, Pastor, I, I just need to pray. I need to, I've, I've been in a disagreement and I need to go to a brother or sister and I need to pray before that. Or you may just, it may not do, be anything to do with this sermon. This altar is open to you. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member of First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to worship Christ today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.